Okie dokie. Cindy, where are we at? We are starting on chapter seven. I knew it. I was just testing you. Uh, you. You passed. That's my way of saying I had no idea where we were, and you keep me accountable. Hebrews chapter seven. All right. It's quite a passage. Let's read all of it. Let's read the chapter all the way through, and then we'll back it up to verse 1 and break it down verse by verse. Um, does anyone want to read the entire chapter of Hebrews 7 for me? And just go for it. The whole thing. Sure. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their countrymen, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithe, has paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his forefather when Melchizedek met him. So if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one about whom these things are said belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses said nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of, a Mel of Mel Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is the nullification of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we come near to God, and to the extent that it was not without an oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. But by the same extent, Jesus also has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers 
because they were prevented by death from continuing. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who has no daily need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all uh, time when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right. Thank you, brother. Quite the chapter. We are talking about... Melchizedek, and uh, his story is found in Genesis 14. What's interesting is we're talking about the promise God gave to um, Abraham, um, and all of a sudden we're talking about Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14, if you don't know who that is, he is the priest king of um, Salem, which becomes Jerusalem. In Genesis fourteen seventeen, it talks about um, Abraham defeating uh, Shedder Loimer and the kings who were with him. Uh, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And so we have Abraham um, on the heels of this victory. Um, that God gave him to rescue his nephew Lot. Um, he was taken captive. And uh, man, Abraham assembles, I think it was like 300 of his own trained men. And he ends up getting victory, taking back the spoil and the people that were taken captive in the middle of this war. And then Melchizedek, all of a sudden, this mysterious priest king figure comes out of Salem, um, which is my son's name. And he brings out bread and wine, like there's a sacrificial offertory meal taking place, a priestly meal. And it says, he was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Um, and then Abram gives a tenth of everything. That's crazy. He just instinctively gives a tenth of everything um, to this priest king, Melchizedek, that brought out a you know, priestly meal. And then after being blessed by Melchizedek, Abram responds by giving a tenth. And then um, you have the king of Sodom, in contrast, instead of giving and blessing, he tells Abraham to take or to give him the persons um, that were taken. So. Yeah, that's the story that's being referenced in Hebrews chapter 7. Let's break it down. Okie dokie. Starting in verse 1, it says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, a priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. See, that's the account in Genesis 14. Um, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. And so this is fascinating. This comes right after 
uh, the end of chapter six was talking about uh, Jesus being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so then we have a little backstory on this Melchizedek and how he relates to Jesus and in what way he's being compared to Jesus and the work of Jesus is like Melchizedek. And so um, we'll start to break that down. Fritt, you have something to share. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure why, but last night I was actually um, led to read this first part of Hebrews 7. And we were kind of talking about Melchizedek. And so it led me to read about it. And in verse 3, um, it says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so this seems to be saying that this Melchizedek is alive. Um, he has not died. So it, it's just, it's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, he's very mysterious. And well, who else hasn't died? Who else is a king and a priest? Was Moses wasn't a king. I know he didn't die. Who has no beginning of days or end of life? Well, Jesus. Do you, do you want us to say Jesus? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I'm waiting for. Okay. Who else? Yeah, but Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And rose to life. He was rose. He, yes. was, he was raised to new life, but didn't he didn't die a second death? Yes. Does he oh, have the end of life? No. He was not he left. He was not left in the pit, but his soul was not left in the pit, but he saw death. Oh, well, maybe. Yeah. Are Are you making a connection for it that? Melchizedek could be Jesus pre-incarnate? I am, because... I've heard that. I mean, I've always... Um, I mean, the, the thing that was confusing was resembling the Son of God. Mm -hmm. But when Melchizedek was here, all right, Jesus was, at that time, the Word. He was not... I don't, And I mean, I could be wrong here, and, you know, please correct me. If need be, I'm perfectly, you know, willing to accept correction. But if Jesus was the word of God and not actually the son of God yet, because he became the son when he was born of man, right? So before he became the son, the begotten son, he was the word of God, which means if he was Mechizeldeck, he would resemble the son of God. Did I explain that right? I can see where you're going with that. I've heard that view, and I don't think anyone can either 100% verify what you're saying is fact, nor deny it, because there's so much mystery around Melchizedek. And it seems though that's intentional, um, is we'd love to know the backstory and make some solid, absolute connections. And while there are theories about Melchizedek being, you know, pre-incarnate Jesus or having some appearance to Abraham, there are some there are some argue, you know, there are some ways to strengthen that argument. You know, Jesus will say, 
um, before Abraham was, I am. And then they go, are you greater than our father, Abraham, right? And straight up here in chapter 7, uh, it says that the greater uh, blesses the lesser, that Melchizedek here in this place is the greater, and Abraham receiving the blessing is actually in the position um, of the lesser. So could that be you know, something that furthers the argument is Melchizedek, but we don't know. And I don't think necessarily that it, it matters to the argument, just that we should know that Melchizedek has a strong connection to Jesus. And we can't absolutely state either way, whether he is or is not the same person, just that he's so closely resembling his priesthood um, that that is what plays into the argumentation here is the priesthood and the person those are what's being compared to further the argument that God's promise is absolutely um, something that stands. And if you read the account in Genesis 14, um, it's almost like that blessing from Melchizedek comes out of left field. Because you read the narrative and everything building up to that point, it there's just so much of Abraham leaving and giving up and having these moments of, of, of crisis to trust God, and then he believes. And, and then all of a sudden, he's face to face with this opportunity to either rescue his nephew a lot or to kind of leave him on his own. Um, and he chooses to do the honorable thing to go and rescue Lot um, and you know help him continue his name and his family. And then he, he rescues him, right? And this king of Salem comes out of nowhere and blesses Abraham right after he received a promise, not about the land, uh, that comes in chapter 15 or 16, but he's promised um, a son. And so there's this crisis that you're supposed to uh, recognize there in the narrative. And in the middle of crisis and wrestling with the promise of God, Abraham chooses to do the honorable thing and rescue his nephew Lot. And it's as if God further establishes that promise and further confirms it with a complete random stranger who ends up being a pretty mighty priest king of that time. And he's considered greater than Abraham. So what we're, I think we're supposed to see here is the argument of Hebrews is saying in chapter six, God made a promise and it's absolutely unchanging. He will not go back on his word. He's validated this by two unchangeable things. And we go, sweet. And then he references Abraham and goes, the same way God promised to Abraham a son and, and land and a name and heritage and blessing, all of that, he established that on his the basis of his own ability and his own unchanging character. And right after that, we have a priest king come in and you know, almost further validate that, yes, the Lord has indeed blessed you and promised what is coming your way, um, which probably get, would have given Abraham some confidence. And I think here in chapter 7, that's the idea is, is the priesthood and promise play off each other in a number of ways. This priest, Jesus, he upholds the promise. He guarantees the promise. He realizes the promise. Um, but also we're to see that like, if we find ourselves in that um, uh, wondering and questioning and doubt like Abram was, we're to look not at you know our own ability and efforts, but at what God has promised being Jesus, the high priest who you know, further um, establishes that. So I think we're supposed to see here um, a very, very strong connection between the priesthood of Jesus and the promise of God, the same way Melchizedek in Genesis um, becomes this extra hand 
on on the promise of God to show Abram, yes, God is going to do what he said, even though it's taking a long time, even though it's taking a long time. He plays that role in, in Abram's life. Um, and so I think someone else wanted to talk. And if you guys would like to chat, please put your hand up. Just say, I would like to chat. So there's order and there's no crossover in the talking. Um, and we'll make sure we have good, solid conversation. So please, if anyone would like to jump in, um, talk about the last three verses we've read in chapter seven, please do. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Just put your hand up and let me know you want to speak. And if not, we'll keep reading. All right. Nothing about verse one through three. Pretty straightforward. Um, Abram returns from the victories, blessed. Abram apportions a tenth part of everything. That's what's, when you read this little section, there's some things that the author could have left out that would have been understood as fact. Like I, I could just reference Genesis 14 and read it myself. So the things he's going to reference about that event have a lot to do with the argument he's making. For instance, when he talks about um, Melchizedek being the priest of the Most High God, we're supposed to know that Melchizedek is not just some random fella um, who has no connection to the Most High. He's actually priest of the Most High. And this comes right after Abraham um, experiences victory given by God. And then Abram gives tenth, a tenth part of everything, um, which is something we should pay attention to. Not necessarily that it's giving us um, a clear command to do or to not do something. Um, I, be- I don't believe this is prescribing anything, just the details of that event that the author is focusing on. Um, we should really, really highlight that in our minds. And it says, he is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And that's also important because we don't have that in Genesis 14. We just have that in knowing the translation of meaning of his name. And so why is it that the author of Hebrews really wants us to know that Melchizedek's name um, is king of righteousness? And what does that have to do with the promises God has given us in Christ? Something to think about. Um, And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. So there's there's a connection between peace and righteousness here that we're supposed to see colliding in the promises of God to his people. Um, so something to meditate on as well is wh- how, why do peace and righteousness here go together? Not just in Melchizedek's you know, name and the meaning of his name, but also in what Jesus has done for us. Because the greater argument of Hebrews is don't go back to what God has brought you out of. There's nothing to return to. Um, don't lose heart, keep going, keep pressing forward, believe in the Messiah. And then he um, is encouraging people by saying there's righteousness and peace to be had. And then verse three is kind of weird, right? It's like he's without father or mother or genealogy. And I've heard some people say um, that that refers purely to historical records that we don't know who his father, him, you know, when it says that he's without father, He's without a father, a mother, or genealogy that we're aware of. We don't know what that is. Um, or the other side of it, the only other you know view I've heard is what Fritz said, is he literally doesn't have uh, a mother, father, or genealogy. And that could likely be something as well. Um, but I don't think we can absolutely say either way. 
just be aware of those two views. Silver, go ahead. Okay, so I'm looking out of notes from the Aramaic. I do have a note of reference on the first verse, back to Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And that's actually where I'm pulling up my initial reference here online as well. Um, on verse 3, King of Peace, um, I've got a note when Rav Shaul references the meaning of the names, he is not translating them for his audience of Hebrew and Aramaic speakers. Instead, he is teaching from the meaning of the name. He makes uh, he is making a deeper remez or, or hint uh, at any as any good Torah teacher would that looking at the meaning of the title of the name reveals a deeper lesson that of how righteousness and peace are related. And then there's a note that the rest of seven chapter easily bears this idea out. So he's beginning with the concept and then spends the rest of the chapter expounding on that concept. I do think it's interesting that the reference that he gives for King of Righteousness is not back to the original my king of righteousness, because um, any good king is also going to be a good king, I think, partially because he does have a relationship with his subjects. He, um, he's not like standoffish per se. There is a, a modicum of decorum there, but like there's a familiarity there. He's not just called Yeah, because you're saying it's my king, which notes personal involvement in the lives of his subjects. Exactly. Yeah. And that just because the whole air of, of the eternal, he wants to get personal with his creation. That's right. Amen. So good insight. That that's what I was thinking is how righteousness and peace collide. Um in the like you said, the title communicates a deeper message but also in the person and work of Jesus. Why is it that righteousness and peace almost cannot exist without each other? They coexist perfectly. Where there's righteousness, there's peace and vice versa. And this is, I think, going to speak to the way that Jesus rules in perfect righteousness and brings peace to his people. Um, and that's what we look forward to in the new creation. But we have a slight, slightly lesser image, or maybe greatly lesser image, in Melchizedek in the Old Testament. There's something about Melchizedek's involvement in Abram's life at that moment with whatever Abram was wrestling through and dealing with and questioning. There's something about Melchizedek's interaction with Abram that foreshadows in some way the way that Jesus represents us, blesses us, brings us into righteousness and peace. And I'm not quite sure how to put my finger on it yet, but I do know that the work of Melchizedek goes so much deeper. Um, like the few, the what, four verses we have on him um, could probably be unpacked into an entire series of messages just because there's so much jam-packed that foreshadows so many different dimensions of the rule, the kingdom, the future of God, uh, of God's people, and mainly Jesus being king over them. So this is all to note that there's something about the promises of God that um, really makes us hold on tighter to King Jesus 
for those to be realized. We're not just standing in promises already accomplished. We're waiting for more to be done. And we can look to his past faithfulness and the images we have like Melchizedek to reinforce the fact that he, he will do what he said. And it's not about you hanging on to anything else except um, this one who is the true king of peace and righteousness. So it's all pointing us back to Jesus in so many different ways. But I would love to hear um, anyone else's thoughts, questions about the text, uh, maybe just connections you have in your mind. Nothing's crazy. Just want to hear you all talk. John. Hello, John. Go ahead. Hi. What I what I saw when I was uh, studying this out is, you know, the whole scene is uh, Abraham's going to rescue Lot. He sets his his family kind of aside, grabs his people, and they go they go into a battle kind of raid. And and when they are are successful and they gather the plunder of everything that was there, and it was from that plunder that the ten percent was given to Melchizedek, and that treasure actually belonged to those that were captured. And so, from what I saw, it was through Abraham that that ten percent was given to Melchizedek, and the lesser is gi- is giving honor to the greater putting them underneath the kingship of Melchizedek because the the tithe is also known as the king's portion. So basically by them giving the king's portion from from their treasuries through Abraham to Melchizedek was subjecting them underneath the kingship of Melchizedek. And it, it just made me wonder what when Jesus referenced in the New Testament that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up against you in judgment, you know, that maybe somehow there was a slight version of righteousness that came through that 10% from through Abraham that allowed them some kind of uh, recognition and under the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's just kind of my thought. That's such a good point because Here we have a king that has no involvement in this war going on between nine other kings. He just steps into the picture and Abram instinctively grabs a tenth, however that was portioned out, of everything that was taken by these enemy kings and gives it to this random Melchizedek figure. And when you think about righteousness, the next event that takes place in chapter 15 of Genesis, is going to be when God brings Abram out, says, look at the stars, that's how many offspring you'll have. And he believed the Lord in verse 6, and God counted it to him as righteousness. So I don't believe the two stories are disconnected at all. I wouldn't necessarily say that Abram believing God's promise depends on Melchizedek blessing him, but there's something to be said about, well, let's just think here, would Melchizedek have blessed Abram in this way, or would God have blessed Abram through Melchizedek in this way if Abram stayed at the Oaks of Mamre and didn't go rescue Lot? It seems as though he wouldn't have been in that place to be blessed by Melchizedek unless he had put himself out there 
to go and risk his own life and the lives of his 318 trained men to rescue his nephew Lot because he's putting a lot on the line for his nephew that he already said, you go out, you build your own name, you go to that portion, whatever's in front of you, you pick first. And they kind of parted ways. And Abram still chooses to get involved in his nephew's um, life in a way that is pretty self-sacrificial and it's going to cost him. And then whatever he wins back from that, he doesn't take anything either. He gives a tenth of that to this random king. And I don't think it's a coincidence that right after this story, Abram's declared righteous. This is the next event. He goes back to, um, I believe it's the Oaks of Mamre, and he's declared righteous when God says, look at the stars. And so when we go to Hebrews chapter 7, and it's, that it's emphasized that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. The, the promise given to Abraham, the blessing given by Melchizedek, and the righteousness Abram's given through faith, I believe they all collide in the same way that those ideas collide in Jesus in a, in a greater way. Um, but I believe Joshua is up next. Go ahead, brother. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks. Um, yeah, it, what I'm really observing here and what, what sticks out to me is, um, it was, as far as we can tell, a free will off, offering on Abraham's behalf. And so, and then the connection I'm making between Jesus and Melchizedek is that Melchizedek is sort of offered salva- salvation. You know, aside aside from his name being what it is and all that, what it means, but he he helped Abraham get his nephew back, and and yeah, like you're saying, you you can tell that he cared for him a great deal. Abraham cared for his nephew a lot, a lot. <laughs> Anyways, uh. And then that birthed a willingness in Abraham to give back to him. It, it wasn't something that he was obligated to do, but it was an offering of thanksgiving. And that's what the Lord loves, is is when we give as a cheerful giver, right? And so I think that has something to do as well with what you're talking about as far as You know, the promise and all that is that he appreciated what the Lord did for him. And he made a point to show him that and um, in love with more than just his words, you know. Yeah, there's there's something about Abraham being willing to lay down his life and then a greater, you know, priest king stepping in to bless him uh there's not only do i see a picture of jesus in his self-sacrifice he's not the lesser in this equation by any means but i do see that element of jesus didn't have to but he did anyway um and then he's uh appointed by the father to be the ultimate high priest king that we need through his death and resurrection so i do see that taking place here um but also the mysteriousness of Melchizedek's history and background, it, it seems to be intentional lest we get lost in the weeds. 
And we're like, but who is he? I don't think who he is matters as much as what he did to give us an image and a picture of Jesus. Um, because I, I, I see, like, for me, it's all clicking. I read this morning. This is so weird. I'm in Genesis in my own quiet time reading Genesis 14 this morning. And then Cindy says, we're in Hebrews 7. And I go, no way. Like, no way. This is exactly what I read this morning. And the sequence of events, I think, plays a role in how the author is using that narrative to further his points about God's promise and this priest king who was ascended through his resurrection to the right hand of the Father. It's almost like Abraham is given a station in Genesis 14 he doesn't deserve um, simply by, by, you know, God's grace. And it's this almost like the way into that blessing and higher station to, 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 um, you know, be the blessing to the nations and, and have Kings come from his line. The the way into that involved this self-sacrifice and God seems to honor that. Um, so how much that act of Abram played a role in what God did through him? I'm not entirely sure, but I do know that Jesus gives us a full picture that it's through his self-sacrifice and love for his people that he didn't have to come and save that he's exalted to the heavens, um, not blessed by Melchizedek, but blessed by the Father directly um, and raised to life to be our high priest. So, yeah, I'm just reading through the chat right now. Um, Prasanthi has a question. Maybe we can um, answer this one together. Maybe Silver can tackle this. Actually, I saw your tiny hand, Silver. Uh, Prasanthi asks, in the New Testament, in the verses about Jesus, uh, there are verses written about Jesus Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of Marriage, which I would assume would be him being the bridegroom in our English language, um, is the Son equal to God? Um, the one who is separate from God is the Son another name of God? Can you explain what a son means? If you don't mind, can you explain it, brother? I think what she's asking is um, that the titles Jesus uses, and I could be wrong, Prasanthi, maybe you can correct me. But it sounds like you are asking if the Son himself is just another mode or manifestation of God. Um, if you're not asking that, you can say, that's not what I meant. But for sure, I know you're asking about the equality between the Son and the Father, if that's a legitimate thing. Is the Son equal with the Father? Um, absolutely. In his essence and being and nature, um, he is equal to the father in that regard, even though he emanates from and is, you know, um, at the right hand of and alongside, he seems to be absolutely um, equal with the father, especially when we get to the way that there's a shared throne, dominion and glory and worship, um, not just in Revelation, but seemingly all the way to the beginning of eternity, if there is such a thing. So um, what a son means is, that when he says son of man, uh, I think the easiest way to understand it is just to be uh, a human one, a truly human one. He, Jesus has real legitimate humanity. He wasn't a fake human. He was a real human. So when he calls himself the son of man, it's to emphasize the fact that he is a truly human one. But also it plays on Ezekiel um, and why the father referred to Ezekiel as the son of man. It's It's this unique appointment as... Jesus being the truly perfect human one. Um, so it's just to emphasize his humanity and the fact that he represents us. Um, you could go all the way to Genesis and 
and and go to John and and look at those passages about how um, Jesus is uh, with the Father and all of that. But I digress. I don't think I explained it adequately, but I, I did my best. Silver, step in and fix fix it. Everyone dancing around the bush because they have sight of the bush. Go back to Jatain. Verse 17. Anybody who was slaughtered? I don't see any slaughter language, but I see defeating language, which can imply slaughtering, but not always. Well, he just got through but I'll count a king. Right? It was the king of Saddam. You, you notice what his name is. Thor Laomer. Thor is hand sheaves. He is slaughtered in Saddam. In the, he's the king of Saddam, but he was slaughtered, slaughtered in Shaveh, which is a plain, or a plain. It's sort of okay. a valley. Someone's got a hot mic. Hold on. I don't know who it was. Sounds like if that. you guys could just make your mics are muted, that'd be helpful. Go ahead, Silver. So, partly what we're seeing here is uh, as a picture of, of Mashiach. So, Mashiach, when everything was created, was labeled or was named. Right, that's what we're seeing. Don't alarm. Jack, hit your mic, please. It's not Jack. Uh, whoever it is, we got it. Lewis, we got it. Jack Junior, we got it. We got it. So, Abraham is righteous, as we saw earlier in uh, Hebrews one. And we have reference to righteousness. Well, that same that same idea or that same tone and tenor applied to Abraham as a, a leader, right? Just below the most high. The king of that was Persia. The Persia was a leader of us. He was taken out in the valley the king of, of Sodom uh, met in Shaveh, or the level plain. If I'm not mistaken, level plain is very much the same terrain that Magog, the Lag, is just south of Russia, is 
unit or plane area. But I guess the the rule of that land, Max the king, or, or is the of Gog. And that land, the south of Syria, south of Russia, that is a large area. So it seems like what in played out here is a picture of times are. To back this up, we get Zechariah, Zechariah 14. What happens? All the nations go up on the high place to our oblations at, at Sukkot, the feast of tabernacles. And that does not rain it off, and they're crying and they start to die out. So here, here we have coming along, he is part of the reaper. Which is a picture of the whole world that time period. The rest of the world started from, from Israel. And after the coming, which is sort of like the fall of heaven, it, it inferred upon him being personal of righteous, Melchizedek. Every way there, it's not one word, words. I'm sorry, it's making me crazy. Melchizedek. There's a high so, what we have is a small picture of the end times, thousands of years before Mashiach comes on scene. Can, can, yeah, you begin to see the larger that's being formed by and he has to begin to put together his picture in his head of, of what was going on with with the answer, what's going to happen in the future when he was putting together their heat or the revelation? Yeah. Revelation three plays out again. Now, now all of a sudden, you hear this idea of helical time once again. It's not that that those know history are doomed to repeat. That God keeps in shadow after foreshadow, for foreshadow of how he worked in this creation of his. And it's lay out again because he kind of clean up the playing field. Now, why that is, I don't know. All we know is we're here at his church. And obviously, takes pleasure in letting, letting us fall, finding him, and then cleans up again. That seems to be a repeating cycle That's right. for some reason. But that seems to be what's going on, specifically with Avram and White Chapter 7, when it brings Melchizedek on, on the with a view of understanding, uh, that's how you tie Hebrews one back to uh, how uh, Genesis fourteen is being uh, as a future event, and how that's going out later in Revelation. And all the Persia was a picture outside of Israel. That was the rest of the world to them, Egypt and Persia. That was the whole nice um, Macedonian Empire, right? In the area of Persia. So everything that covered from the east, from the west Egypt to the to, to the east lands between Russia and China, all that area was Macedonia. 
quote, in the cuneiform. And that's where we get our play out of Aramaic and Rue. And, oh, why there's so much content in there. My mind is being now. You should start a YouTube channel. No, I already have them, so I can't beat. I defer. Well, the opportunity is always there. We didn't read uh, the next portion. Which <laughs> I read. It's about the Levites. So, so hold, hold your mind blowing, Silver. Well, you're going to get the verse here also. And so when we do that, this is going to be to, to bring up um, when you start bringing the, the context for Hebrews 8 3, uh, when you get to verse to this. And so there's going to be more of this play happening. Well, yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, when you get to chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to That's have something to offer. Yes, and for Zechariah, effort 14 comes in. Nice. Well, all right, let's read it. Verse 4. It says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So for those that were like, what did Abram give to Melchizedek? Well, a tenth of the spoils from his victory. There's something about the victory and the spoils given to this high priest king um, that is important. Because look, then it goes, and those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So you're you're probably wondering why are we using Melchizedek and what he did to Abram as a way to talk about the tithe that Levi not took from the people but they were appointed to receive from the people of Israel. And if you don't know how Israel worked as a theocracy, that was essentially like what John was saying earlier, uh, the king's portion, right? The king had a portion to support all the work that went into the tabernacle and the priests that were set up to do their duties and the teardown of the church, all of that, okay? That was supported by their livelihood, um, was supported by the other Israelites who would give, give to that. Um, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take from the people, um, that is from their brothers, even though these also are descended from Abraham. So it seems like a completely different line of reasoning, like a completely different topic. Where like, you know, chapter six, Jesus is the great high priest forever. He's like Melchizedek, chapter seven. He's like Melchizedek blessed Abram. He, you know, he blesses us and he gives us what we don't deserve. And then all of a sudden it's like in the tithe. Let's talk about that. Because Levi, t you know, received a tenth from their brothers. And you go, why are we going here? Honestly, I have no idea. Let's keep, keep reading. Verse 6 says, But this man, who doesn't have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So apparently, like we've been saying, Melchizedek is in this image greater than, superior to Abram. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he 
lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. I want you to highlight that or whatever your translation makes that out to be. The concept of Levi in the loins of Abram paying tithes through Abraham to this priest king, Melchizedek. And if you didn't follow, essentially what he's saying is Levi has not yet come from the loins of Abraham, but he's in there. So it's as if that tribe that will be the priestly tribe of Israel, it's as if they are in the loins of Abraham giving a tenth to this priest king, Melchizedek. Why we are talking about this? Verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Met him. So you probably have a lot more questions now, and that's good, because we should ask questions. It's how we reason through things and make sense of things, and we want to come to the right conclusion. So try and track with what chapter 7 has talked about. Abram's blessed. Melchizedek's cool. He has a mysterious history. And he continues forever. He was great. Now let's talk about the tithe. Why are we bringing up the fact? Here's what is happening. Why are we comparing the tribe of Levi in the loins of Abraham with the priest king Melchizedek? Why are we making that comparison? Why are we even looking at the two and comparing them side by side? And we can't lose sight of the main picture. Jesus is our great high priest. Part of the way the author is going to explain how that works logistically is by looking at the tribe of Levi and that priestly tribe side by side with Melchizedek and his, you know, little moment in the narrative. So, questions? I'm sure you have them. Let them rip. Connections? Statements? Put your hands up and Let's hear him. Ken says the tithe shows who is in charge. Now, what's interesting is the contrast so far is that Levi was prescribed in the law to receive the tithe from the people. It was a command instituted by God. That was the law. That was how the theocracy was set up. With Melchizedek, it's different. No one commanded Abraham. No one told him he had to do that. Of his own free will, like Joshua said, he gave freely a tenth of the spoil that he didn't even intend to keep. So not only is he going, I'm not taking any of it, but he goes, I'll go a step further. I will give a tenth of that spoil to someone else that is greater. For some reason, in Abraham's mind, he understands the superiority or the greatness of this Melchizedek king of Salem. And it's just on us to go, why are we talking about in the middle of the promises and the greatness of God and Jesus' priesthood? Why are we talking about the tithe? Ken? And so the reason why I bring that up is because we see two types of tithing given. Um, And one isn't so much as a a tithe but as an an offering, a gift offering, a wave offering uh, during the feast to say that this is but like a down payment 
to the one who owns it, to the Lord. So a wave offering being done to show this belongs to you, which later on we see uh, at Pentecost that when the Spirit falls upon us, as Jesus paid it all, he gives a down payment of his Spirit to us to say, I will come back for this later on. So when I see the tithing, to me, this kind of correlates to the same thing. It shows who is in charge. And that would fit into what he's saying about one being superior and the other inferior. Um, not at all to like completely um, minimize Abraham and be like, nothing he did was significant. But just to go, well, when we're looking at the two one seems to have greater significance and weight and authority than the other. Um, Christy, go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, yes, that was an excellent point. Um, I'm not sure who was speaking um, right before, but um, yes. So I um, heard someone say, and um, I'll, well, I'll just say it, that Jesus is the tithe. Um, so it, it makes sense. Um, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but when we begin to read in uh, chapters 8 and 9, um, we're going to see, like, pretty much when you mentioned, um, Jason, about, you know, the lesser uh, and Melchizedek, am I saying his name correctly? <laughs> Um, being the, uh, uh, well, how there's like a comparison between the lesser and the, the more greater. Like that's going to be like more explained, um, it looks like, in chapters 8 and 9. Um, but, uh, so I think it's really cool um, <laughs> because, um, um, sorry, um, <clears throat> Yeah, um, I think it's really cool because it's basically just like painting painting a picture um, about how, um, you know, we're going to be recognizing um, in the scripture uh, just the, the, the purpose of um, more of the purpose of, of Jesus, more of the purpose of Christ. And um, it's so neat that... Um, you know, it is in relation to, or that that the tithe can can be in relation to the purpose of Christ, because, um, you know, like what the person said <laughs> that Jesus is the tithe, and um, you know, because like when when Jesus, um, you know, when he came, he became the the last lamb you know and um and that's what like the ties like in under the law like they were offering I mean they were making sacrifices um for sin um I'm just and I'm going based off of like like remember it's because I haven't like looked at the 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 law of about tithing in a while but yeah so that's basically all <laughs> I'm sorry and thank you so much for um putting up with Sometimes I just get kind of tongue-tied and a little bit shy. But, yes, that, that completes my comment. I'll go ahead and turn off my mic. One no, minute. Great point. I, I love that. 
the idea that you know the father has given his son as uh, what we would if we want to make a comparison and go what could I bring to God that is greater than what he could what he's given to me the answer would be nothing um, if anyone's giving the greater tithe in quotations right it's God and not to make us the superior in any way but and if anything we're in the position of Abram. Um, I don't have anything really I can offer God to gain um, what only his son is of equal value to and, or superior value to, that being um, the, the life and salvation that he offers us in his son because he's, Jesus is life. He is our salvation. And so the, the whole point of this is it's actually not about what we can bring. And I, I think that's what often gets um, – focused on in this text is the tithe becomes the main topic of discussion. It's like, well, how much do I have to give? How much can I bring to keep myself saved? How much did, did Abraham get blessed because he gave? What if he didn't give? Actually, he gave after the blessing came. If you read the text, he's blessed and then he responds with giving. He doesn't give to be blessed. So that's the idea here is that as much as... um. We want to emphasize how great Abram's act of generosity was in giving a tenth of the spoils. Um, it's not as impressive as the fact that Melchizedek unprovoked blessed Abram um, to, you know, to be aligned with the will of God for Abraham. God was essentially blessing Abraham through Melchizedek. That's the idea is how does God bless his people? How do we get promises? He blesses us through the great high priest king that no one can be compared to, and that's Jesus. Um, and so anything I give or do should be in response to what he's um, given me. And at first, he's loved me first, so I can even be capable of loving him. So, um, John, go ahead. Hello. I, what I was um, pointing out in the history at that particular time, because it was before the Levitical, you know, mandate of the 10% given, is that the kings of the day in that time, it was called the ten king's portion because that's what they used for the defenses of the city to build up the military, to build walls, to, you know, equip and and to protect those that were underneath their kingdom. And so for me, uh, seeing Abraham giving that king's portion to Melchizedek validated that he was a king. Now, the question that I actually do have is it says that he was the king of Salem. And if that is Jerusalem, was Jerusalem built at that particular time? Because I, I don't know. Uh, I would say that it at least exists as... Um... A city entity, but it hasn't been taken over by David and renamed um, Jerusalem, which is what I believe he does. Correct me if I'm mistaken. I, I don't think he just conquered it, but he actually renamed the city, um, or possibly it was already Jerusalem. But here we have the at least the name of the city being Salem, um, being peace, and um, we don't see that city um, brought into Israel under their authority until David is king. If that kind of answers your question, I don't remember. So I'd have to say, I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, I think that's what happened is that he renamed the city after he conquered it because that was the city 
that the, um, I forget who it was, the Jebusites, Hivites, they were living in the city and they said, David can't get in. And then they mocked him and that kind of ticked him off. And then he really gave him what he had and ended up taking it over and renamed it. But I could, I'll, I'll read the text while Joshua um, shares. Go ahead, Joshua. I, I just wanted to comment on like the, the tithe that we're called to give today that Jesus speaks to in Luke chapter 6. Um, it's like basically Luke's account of the Beatitudes. And there's a slight difference in what's being said. But he says, love your enemies, do good. Lend hoping for nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father is also merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put in your bosom for with the measure that you use it will be measured back to you one of the things he was saying to the pharisees elsewhere i don't remember where but he's telling them like you guys give your tithes and spices and all this stuff but you you should have done justice and offered mercy as well basically I'm paraphrasing and butchering that, but basically that's what he's saying is like he, he's calling for people to be merciful. Like you've received mercy. Okay, good. Now give mercy. And, um, and just it's he, what I love is he always speaks to it. It is going to be profitable and it doesn't, I, I think we lose a lot of this in the, you know, being so focused on salvation, 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 like God rewards those. If it's faith working through love, he's going to pay you back. You can't outgive him. He's going to always give back more than what you give him if it is faith working through love. And, you know, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What Whatever the currency is, whether it be time, money mercy like whatever it is he he rewards those who honor him in love and thanksgiving and um i just wanted to offer him praise for that absolutely um man what does jesus tell the disciples they go right after the rich young ruler leaves with his tail tucked between his legs peter goes well we left everything for you what do we get and then Jesus goes, well, anyone who has left mother, father, sister, brother, households, land to follow me, you know, you'll have uh, whatever it is, a hundredfold. Um, and he's not just speaking of, we often think of those are purely spiritual uh, rewards he's referring to. Absolutely, that uh, that is the focus of it. But there is a sense in which um, the resources that the kingdom of God has available now become accessible to you. Like, um, since we are one family and my money's not my own, my resources are not my own. They belong to God. 
it's like the book of Acts where they pull together everything they have and they lay it at the feet of the apostles to give to the poor. Everything they have belongs to everyone. Everything they had, they had in common. And I think that's the idea is that Jesus intends to, if you want to say reimburse, that's fine. But it's a, it's, it's the fact that God chooses to honor us when he doesn't have to. If I give to him, he's under no obligation to give back to me um, as a good act of charity. He doesn't have to. He chooses to. And it actually involves all the resources pulled together in his kingdom, whether that be time, like you said, or or abilities or, you know, access to certain places or, you know, even if it ends up being financial um, provision or things in heaven, there's so many different ways that God honors your faithful um, obedience and your, your generosity and the amount that you pour into the kingdom. God rewards so much um, in ways that we're not even aware of, that we just look right past. Um, so, oh, can I can I mention one other thing real quick? Just um, when it comes to like the woman with the two copper coins, how how she gave more than all the rich people who were putting so much money in because she gave what she had. So it's he rewards it according to what you have and not what you don't have, and I I think that's just another beautiful thing. So like. Even a person who doesn't have a lot of faith, if they're using the measure they have, that's that's pleasing in his eyes. Mm. Absolutely. Whatever he calls you to give, sacrifice, lay down, offer, you know he'll multiply. John, why don't you finish us off and then we will call it a night. All right, my mind is just kind of getting blown a little bit about this Melchizedek, and I never really thought about it, him being the priest-king. If he's a, a physical priest-king and not a spiritual, kind of what I was assuming, then would he be a Judaic priest that that or a Hebrewic priest that was actually risen to a king in, in Salem before it became Jerusalem then? So would that be... There was God in that city, I guess, b- before it was captured by David. I think the point is that this Melchizedek has no physical ethnic ties to the nation of Israel. He's just, he's on his own. <laughs> and that's actually going to be necessary for the author of Hebrews to make the claims he does about Jesus that Jesus is a high priest on the basis of his indestructible life. Because you could only be the high priest if you descended from not just Levi, but Aaron in particular. Um, that's how you became the high priest, as you were appointed um, through your ethnic descent and who your father was. With Jesus, it's different. It does involve fatherhood, but it's the fact that God is his father, validates his sonship by raising him from the dead, that makes him the high priest for all humanity, even though he descends from Judah. He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah. Um, And that's the argument in Hebrews. I want to say it's like eight or nine. Um, And he's kind of making it just clearing away the garbage using Melchizedek as an example to be like, how could he be a, how could he be a priest of most high? He doesn't have any physical connection to the nation of Israel. He doesn't have to. God can appoint who he wants 
And that's, I believe, the point being made with Melchizedek is God can appoint who he wants, how he wants, on the basis of his own gracious choice, and he has sent his son to be the ultimate choice. So we just get to relish in that and go, wow, that is cool. Um, So that's where we'll end tonight.